0: According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 1 this morning, verses 46 through 56. Luke 1, through 56, taking really our first lengthy look at the Magnificat. We had uh, about 10 minutes at the end of last week to take a peek at it, I don't really count that as a full look, as uh, for the last couple of weeks we've been dealing with the song of Elizabeth to Mary in verses 39 through 45, and we're ready now at this point to move on to the song of Mary, Mary's song of praise. I do have a couple of other Harmony of the Gospels that I found and still need to make more photocopies of, but I do have two if you need a Harmony of the Gospel to follow along in this study. There's also one printed in the Through the Bible notebook, and as well as posted on the website, so uh, they're available from a variety of sources. I should point out that it's not my overall harmony that we're following. There are differences in the different uh, ones that are available, slight differences. In, with some of the events, there's a little bit of guesswork in terms of, uh, I say, guesswork educated estimations in terms of trying to correlate different events uh, but this har- the basic harmony itself was taken from nelson 's complete book of Bible maps and charts uh, served as a good starting point but the uh, the dating structure uh, was redone I read I redid the dating structure I forget what uh, I think they had a, a, a four BC date for the birth of Christ and they had a, a Um, a 30 A.D. or 32 A.D. crucifixion date and so forth. So I revised those dates uh, and uh, made those dates consistent with the material that's found in Harold Honer's work, Chronological Aspects of the Life of Christ, published in BIMSAC, uh, the Theological Journal of Dallas Seminary, also published in book form uh, some years back now. It's been out for a while. Chronological Aspects of the Life of Christ by Harold Honer. And if anybody ever asks me what's my opinion about a Wednesday crucifixion, Thursday, Friday crucifixion, uh, 30 A.D., 32 A.D., 33 A.D., all questions related to the Passion Week itself in terms of chronology, uh, I think Honer has the uh, has the best material out there. So that's the tool that I make use of. And that I recommend. All right, Luke chapter 1 now, 46 through 56. Before we do any of this, let's take time for silent prayer to assure that we're filled with the Spirit. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for one more day in which to wake up, in which to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you that on this day, you have provided for us the assembling of ourselves together for the purpose of that growth. We ask this morning for distractions to be set aside. We ask for concentration upon the material at hand. Implant this truth within our soul, Father, not just merely in gnosis, factual understanding, but in the true knowledge of your word, Father. Let it come alive. Let it dwell richly within each one of us. And, Father, let it find a good depth of soil so that in the day of application it may spring forth to bear fruit 30, 60, or even 100-fold according to the gift of your grace. We thank you now in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Alright, Luke chapter 1 then, 46 through 56. This is the, uh, fourth section in the birth, infancy, and adolescence of Jesus and John the Baptist. The uh, really the first main portion of our harmony after we get through the introductory material. The introductory material consisted of Luke's introduction, the pre-incarnation work of Christ from John chapter 1, and then genealogical studies from Matthew and from Luke. After that brief introduction, we then launched into the first real main section, which has 17 parts to it, and then we will proceed beyond that to the uh, events of John the Baptist, including the baptism event and uh, the early miracles of Christ. For this morning, though, sending the stage once again, the angel has appeared to Zacharias, promising that a baby would be born. Uh, He had some doubt, did not apply faith, and so he was placed under divine discipline and left speechless. Then uh, the angel appears to Mary, and she does respond by faith. She is not placed under divine discipline, and she is left with excitement and wonder. She packs up her bags and moves off to the hill country of Judah, which we observe in verse 39. At this time, Mary arose and went in a hurry to the hill country to a city of Judah and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. And we've spent some time now for two weeks dealing with Elizabeth and Mary and uh, their ministry, the reciprocal ministry, one to another. Elizabeth counted it a blessing. Mary counts it a blessing. They both credit uh, this time as a time that the Lord has provided to them on the basis of grace very excited about the uh, hand of God and what he's doing in their lives. Obviously, they're each going to be bearing a child. The older woman is bearing the forerunner. The young virgin is bearing the Christ. But they each have a ministry towards one another during the three-month time that they uh, spend together. We find the three months that are listed there down in verse 56. Mary stayed with her about three months and then returned to her home. In other words, she stayed through the remainder of Elizabeth's pregnancy and Delivery. So as I say, for two weeks now we've been looking at Elizabeth's song and learning uh, some important principles to develop out of there. I want to take today to look at the Magnificat, which is our first point of study. Mary's song of praise is commonly referred to as the Magnificat, capital M-A-G-N-I-F-I-C-A-T, spell it out in case you're Listening on tape or mp3 and you don't have the screen to look at. The Magnificat. You might even have it in the margin of your Bible, depending on what publisher published your English Bible. You get those little margin headings, those little uh, subtitles in the text. You understand those are not God-breathing inspired. <laughs> All right. Those little blurbs are publishing blurbs. And uh, we've had them for centuries, in some cases millennia. All right. Mary's Song of Praise is commonly referred to as the Magnificat. comes from the Latin, the Vulgate version of the Bible, from this particular verse. Et, ait Maria, Magnificat, anima, mea, dominum. If I butchered the Latin, please forgive me, I'm not a Latin scholar. But the first word of the song is Magnificat, meaning magnified, exalted, as we have it in the English. My soul exalts the Lord. That's the word order in the English. In the Greek, it's a little different. In the, in the Latin, it's a little different. It places magnificat first, the verb, and then anima, soul, uh, mea, mine, and dominum, lord. So exalt, soul, my, lord is the word order in the Latin Vulgate. Secondly, her song is similar to that of Hannah's in the Old Testament. I'm just going to read through this passage and uh, in its entirety and then we'll return to 1 Samuel 2 go back to Hannah and take a look at the old testament development and Mary said my soul exalts the lord and my spirit has rejoiced in god my savior for he has had regard for the humble state of his bond slave for behold from this time on all generations will count me blessed For the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is His name. And His mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear Him. He has done mighty deeds with His arm. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, and has exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, and sent away the rich empty-handed." He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his descendants forever. All right, this is the content of the song. As we introduced it last week in the final five or ten minutes or so, whatever we had last week, um, I commented upon a couple of things that we're going to want to keep in mind in, in the process of looking at this song. It reflects an amazing understanding of Old Testament truth. And we will observe that verse by verse, point by point as we go through it. We will observe the Old Testament foundation that is contained within this particular song. Uh, Understanding, of course, when Mary composed this song, the Old Testament was the Bible. There was no New Testament. None of the New Testament was being written yet. She's a, an Old Testament saint, as it were, that is, a believer who was saved prior to the cross. We call them Old Testament saints. Don't confuse our vocabulary with, um, with uh, some verbal distinctions here. Uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are Old Testament. All right, Church does not begin until... Acts chapter 2 and the day of Pentecost, all right? So even though those books are written in Greek and and those books are located within the New Testament of our printed Bibles, the events that occurred in those books were Old Testament events. And uh, I know that's something I've mentioned occasionally, but perhaps that's something we need to say more frequently. Mary is an Old Testament saint. She got saved the same way you and I got saved, by placing her faith in, in Christ, the only difference is we looked back to the Christ who came and his finished, completed work on the cross. Mary and all the other Old Testament saints looked ahead to the coming Christ, the promised one, the promised kinsman-redeemer who would take away the sin of the world, who would crush the serpent's head, who would redeem lost humanity and reconcile lost humanity to a right relationship with God the Father. Salvation is the same before the cross and after the cross. It's just a matter of time perspective. Are we looking back? Or are we looking forward? So Mary is an Old Testament believer. And she has an amazing understanding of Scripture, Old Testament Scripture, which for her was all the Scripture, all the Scripture that she had available to her, the last writing prophet being Malachi, some 400 years prior to Mary. So she has a complete Bible in terms of the Old Testament available to her. And as we go item by item through here, we're going to see some correlations. We're going to see some amazing connections at the same time, I think we also want to temper our uh, our uh, eagerness or readiness or or uh, we've we got to be pretty slow about assigning Mary total understanding of all of this because she is composing this song under verbal plenary inspiration in other words how much did she truly know the content of these verses is is Amazing, But we understand that that's the Holy Spirit speaking through Mary, revealing the truth of God's word. And prophets did not always understand the things they were speaking of. When the Holy Spirit spoke through them, when, when the Holy Spirit used a prophet to utter uh, divine revelation... Most of the time, as we have it revealed in Scripture, they understood what they were speaking of, but oftentimes they did not understand what they were speaking of. And in certain cases, not only did they fail to understand it, but they were left, uh, speechless. They were left overwhelmed. They were left scared. If you look at Daniel and Ezekiel, on a number of occasions, they were just, they fell on their face. The Apostle John said he fell on his face like a dead man. Uh, now, in this immediate context, there's no indication that uh Mary had any kind of overwhelming um uh experience that she had any kind of uh uh divine uh ecstasy that left her uh inexplicable as far as the things she was saying and I think because of the way the song begins with my soul and my spirit, I think that this song does reflect the appreciation that she has in her. Uh, what we call doctrine and residency, what she has in her understanding of the Word of God. That she had, prior to this, she had an understanding of God's Word. Um, but have you ever noticed how the Bible becomes real personal when you're involved in the testing process? <laughs> you know, you um, He will not test us beyond that which we're able to bear. Okay, I can learn that academically. It means one thing. But it means something else altogether when I am being so tested and so crushed and so on the verge of saying, this is more than I can bear. (laughs) When I'm thick in the middle of it and the testing becomes personal, then Scripture takes on a whole new meaning. And I think obviously passages like a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, I'm sure they meant something to Mary in her childhood. I'm sure they meant something to her prior to Gabriel showing up. But think what that passage meant afterwards when the virgin did conceive. Think uh, how all of the Davidic promises are going to start to become very personal to the daughter of David, virgin of, of uh, that Mary was, all right. So those are just kind of introductory comments to discuss the fact that simply because Mary is the one speaking here, uh, and simply because there is tremendous amount of teaching, um, we want to take that with, on the other hand, an understanding that by speaking under prophetic utterance, the doctrine reflected may be the Holy Spirit's. Content rather than Mary's content. And I think we need to consider both both sides of that particular issue. All right, so did I just confuse everything? Okay. Now, let's take a look at Hannah's song in 1 Samuel chapter 2. In a way, some of this is inescapable, um, that people are going to find similarities, because there are a number of similarities, And uh, yet, at the same time, uh, we want to recognize them for what they are. Hannah was an Old Testament believer who uh, prayed for a child, who was blessed in answer to her prayer, who was provided for a child, and whose child was dedicated to the Lord's service for his entire life. Her joy and her excitement at the faithfulness of the Lord in her life motivated her to compose the song. So, in a sense, Mary and Hannah, even though they're a thousand years separated in time or more, um, they, uh, they're, they're promoting these things under similar circumstances. Inner joy, heart joy, at the faithfulness of the Lord, uh, the delight of a mother bringing a new child into the world, and so forth. 1 Samuel chapter 2 Then Hannah prayed and said Uh, Of course the context for this is all established in chapter 1 Hannah's husband uh, was a polygamist. Elkanah he had two wives. We don't know why he had two wives. Uh, If it was a leveret marriage or maybe it was just he wanted two wives. But whatever the case was he had two wives. Hannah and Penina that are listed there in chapter 1 and verse 2. Penina had children but Hannah had no children. And then there was the Rivalry between them, the uh, scorn that Hannah felt, and uh, the love of her husband, and the and the issues there. She takes a vow that she that if the Lord gives her a child, she will dedicate it to the Lord. That's uh, in chapter one and verse eleven. And so it comes about. Um, she has a baby, and so she fulfills her vow. And after weaning the child in verse twenty four, she took him to Shiloh and dedicated him into the service of the high priest Eli. So, as chapter 1 comes to an end, Hannah says, uh, I have also dedicated him to the Lord as long as he lives. He is dedicated to the Lord, and he worshipped the Lord there, indicating that the child was saved at a very young age and began his priestly ministry at that time. Then, then chapter 2, Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth speaks boldly against my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. Now this is going to be a key that we'll observe not only in Hannah's song but in Mary's song and also in our own prayer life. We need to make sure that the expressions of thanksgiving and praise are truly expressions of thanksgiving and praise and not bragging that we're giving God the glory for what God has done. See, like the hymn says, To God be the glory of great things he hath done, and not ourselves. In, in some cases, an immature prayer life is is actually a thinly veiled um, bragging session. And people will bring up, a, a, they say, I have a praise item, and they bring it to a prayer meeting. and And rather than highlight what the Lord has done, they're celebrating what they've done. And then maybe at the end they tack on, oh, and, you know, of course, God gave me the strength to do such a thing, or God gave me the opportunity to do such a thing. Alright? Not necessarily speaking of our prayer meetings here, so relax. <laughs> Alright. But think about the uh the the prayer life in, in, of the uh the Pharisee there when he was thanking the Lord that he was such a wonderful person. And that he tithe of all that he had, and he was better than the tax gatherer and all of that. See that's What we are uh, trying to avoid. And Hannah avoids it, Mary avoids it, we want to avoid it. When we are exalting and praising, we are glorifying what he has done. As she says here, My mouth speaks boldly against my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there is no one besides you. Nor is there any rock like our God. Boast no more, so very proudly. Do not let arrogance come out of your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and with him actions are weighed. The uh, rebuke there being addressed to her rival or being addressed to any believer with misaligned priorities and misaligned sense of, uh, of uh, who's doing the work. The bows of the mighty are shattered, but the feeble gird on strength. Those who are full higher themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry cease to hunger. We'll see that theme of the full and the, and the hungry in Mary's song. Even the barren gives birth to seven, but she who has many children languishes. The Lord kills and makes alive, he brings down to shale and raises up. The Lord makes poor and rich, he brings low, he also exalts. Mary likewise in her song also mentions poorness and riches. He raises the poor from the dust he lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit down with nobles and inherit a seat of honor. You know it's kind of remarkable because this concept transcends the human realm and and actually begins to address uh, angelic realities as well. Remember the part of the fall of Satan in the angelic rebellion was his dissatisfaction with the seating arrangements. And that there was the throne that he lusted after. He coveted the, he wanted to raise his throne above the stars of God. He wanted to take his seat on the Mount of the Assembly in the recesses of the North. But that wasn't his seat to take. It was the Father's seat to grant. And the Father granted it to the Son, to the Lord Jesus Christ. And Hebrews says, to which of the angels do the Ever say, sit at my right hand? Some of this will come up at towards the end of the Life of Christ series when James and John start, uh, Jockeying for uh, seating assignments. (laughs) And they start, uh, they get their mother in on it and they start to try to get, you know, uh, they're trying to get dibs on uh, seating assignments, like calling shotgun or something, and they want to sit on his right and on his left. Jesus Christ says, You do not even know what you're asking for. The Father is the one that assigns the seating arrangements in glory. So when um, Hannah addresses the issue here, he lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with nobles and inherit a seat of honor, it's it's interesting because this encompasses a lot of material that pertains to Christ himself, who was made for a little while lower than, than, than the angels, but then in the resurrection was exalted, magnified, and seated, having been given a name higher than any other name that is named. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and he set the world on them. I think verse 8, when you see the pillars of the earth and you see the world and you see the vast scope of creation, verse 8 is is communicating on a cosmic basis. What we're talking about is cosmology. We're talking about the creation of the universe, angels, human beings, and so forth. And I think far too few um, scholars are examining these things with angelic uh, information in mind. He keeps the feet of his godly ones, but the wicked ones are silenced in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. This is a thought that's echoed in Ecclesiastes. Um, This is a concept that we sang on Sunday morning. Not to the strong is the battle. Not to the swift is the race. Not by might shall a man prevail. Those who contend with the Lord will be shattered. Against them he will thunder in the heavens. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. And he will give strength to his king. And will exalt the horn of his anointed king. And so the song here concludes with the messianic promise of the coming Christ, the coming, uh, Christ, Mashiach, anointed king. Keep in mind when you have anointed, that's the term for Christ, that's the term for Mashiach, Messiah, is the anointed one. So we have a, a Hannah song to, uh, to draw from here. And this is, uh, this hands us down a principle for our own worship, for our own expression, for our own thanksgiving and praise. Uh, Mary, when she wanted to praise the Lord, when she wanted to celebrate a the, the, the blessings of the Lord in her life and her pregnancy and the coming birth, naturally she drew upon the Song of Hannah. Makes sense. It was in her Bible. It was a story that meant something to her. You know, she didn't draw upon... Uh, David and Goliath, or <laughs> she didn't draw upon uh, the flood of Noah, she didn't draw upon uh, uh, Daniel in the lion's den. I mean, it just didn't apply. What applied was a very thankful mom, overwhelmed by grace, pleased and humble to be used by him to bring a child into the world that would be used by the Lord. I mean, stop and think about it. Stop and we just had Mother's Day. Stop and think about the awesome responsibility and the blessings of being a mother, and the child that is raised. You know, I'm I'm looking forward to the judgment seat of Christ and watching uh, the mother of, uh, of Billy Graham, for example. <laughs> I mean, of course, Billy Graham's reward we kind of need to watch too. But, but think about his mother. Think about um, think about George Beverly Shea's mother. And how he almost went off the deep end, except she kept writing him notes, kept leaving little scripture passages everywhere, little cards stuck on the piano and little things uh, taped up on the wall. It's quite interesting, and he credits his mother for that, when he was on the verge of signing a big radio deal and could have gone into maybe secular music and singing with the the voice that he had. And yet uh, his mother kept giving him scripture notes and kept reminding him of the, the blessings of the Lord that had provided him that voice in the first place. And he went on to sing all those wonderful songs, impact the lives of many. So the opportunity of a mother to bring a child into the world, to raise that child, who was then going to go on and be of amazing service to the Lord, is, uh, is quite amazing. So naturally, this was her understanding of scripture. This is what she appreciated. This is what motivated her prayer life. Her songs, the, the song that she composed and wrote, was grounded in scripture. Are we doing the same thing in our prayer life? Are we able to cite Scripture? Are we able to celebrate God for His glory and for His essence? I think it's a... uh... A, uh, a good idea in terms of just a, a praise session of prayer to pick uh, pick an attribute and just just uh, start thanking him for an attribute. You know, maybe make sovereignty the attribute of today and tomorrow do righteousness and the day after that maybe do love or do eternal life or just pick an essence in the attributes of God and praise the Lord for that for that particular item of His essence. Quote scripture to him. He likes to hear scripture. I'm convinced of that. That's why so many of the scripture writers used scripture in their own compositions, in their own hymns of praise. Thirdly, Mary's song reflects an amazing Old Testament foundation. Mary's song reflects an amazing Old Testament foundation. And this is where we get humbled because we have not only an Old Testament foundation, but a New Testament foundation. Our worship should be above and beyond anything that uh, that these believers had the opportunity to produce. And that's why I think when all is said and done and the Lord Jesus Christ reviews church history and so forth, that's why I think that uh, the um, nature of hymnology is of the sort, that um, we have the capacity in the church age to develop out a, uh, a, a body of music, a body of hymns, based upon not only Old Testament, but New Testament revelation to incorporate all the glories of the church in song. And uh, when all is said and done, I think that's going to be reflected upon and rewarded as a significant achievement in the uh, history of the church. All right, what's the first of these then? We start off, let's just go verse by verse through the Magnificat. Let me get back to Luke 1 here. Take a look at these things. Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. The first uh, item of this song reflects a pairing of soul and spirit. Reflects the pairing of soul and spirit. Now, we are trichotomous beings as born again believers in Jesus Christ. We have a body, we have a soul, and we have a spirit. And even as the father was pleased to impregnate her body, her soul and her spirit were reflecting the glory of what he had supplied for her with praise. The pairing of soul and spirit. My soul exalts the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. Now this is characteristic of Hebrew poetry, by the way, to to form two lines in parallel by restating the same thing in two different ways. Very common. You'll find it in the Psalms, you'll find it in Proverbs, you'll find it in uh, compositions of this sort. And she's effectively saying the same thing, but showing a distinction between soul and spirit. In other words, the immaterial part of her. When when you're just referring to the inner man versus the outer man, you can say, okay, we have two parts to ourselves. We have the, the external and the internal But still, by splitting up soul and spirit, she identifies the fact that in the internal part of her being, the part that truly worships, she does possess both soul life and spirit life. All right. We have foundation for this in the Old Testament, found in Psalm 77, found in Isaiah 26. So let's examine these. We have taught soul and spirit. We have taught soul and spirit as a part of the First Corinthians series. So that's within the last two years we've done a study on soul and spirit. I know that the MP3s are available. I know that the uh, PDF documents are available on the website. The study that we did on soul and spirit. All right, Luke 1. I'm sorry, Psalm 77, verses 2 and 3. Let's take a look at it. Psalm 77, 2 and 3. The soul, by the way, is the real you as the seed of your personhood, your being, as uh, we break it down in terms of mentality and consciousness and self-consciousness and and uh, emotions and uh, so forth. Some pastors will even include the old sin nature as a part of the soul, but I long ago decided that that was not appropriate. The old sin nature, the soul... "...departs from the body and enters into uh, into heaven, absent from the body, face to face with the Lord, and sin does not enter into the presence of heaven. I believe the sin nature is infested in the very DNA, every cell, every fiber of, of our physical bodies, but not the soul. Other pastors will teach that differently and make old sin nature a part of the attributes of the soul." But I believe you got mentality, self-conscious, uh, self-consciousness, conscience, emotions that are all a part of the soul. Spirit is what's made alive when you place your faith in Jesus Christ. Spirit is your capacity to relate to God himself who is spirit so that prayer, worship, uh, the spiritual life functions are in fact accomplished by the spirit as opposed to the soul. All right, Psalm 77. This is a Psalm of Asaph. For the choir director. Alright, choir director is not a trick question. How many people are in a choir? (laughs) It doesn't say for the soloist, it says for the choir director. The content of this psalm and so many other psalms emphasize the priesthood, emphasize the corporate nature of worship. That this is a doctrine, this is a principle, this is a concept that we can all celebrate together and and uplift our voices together. The psalm of Asaph. My voice rises to God, and I will cry aloud. My voice rises to God, and He will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I sought the Lord. In the night, my hand was stretched out uh, without weariness. My soul refused to be comforted. When I remember God, then I am disturbed. When I sigh, then my spirit grows faint. You have held my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. You ever have nights like this? (laughs) All right. All right. I have considered the days of old, the years of long ago. I will remember my song in the night. I will meditate with my heart and my spirit ponders. But it's interesting here. We have soul and spirit stretched out in, uh, or that are put in parallel between verse 2 and verse 3. Verse 2 is soul. Verse 3 is spirit. You see the pairing of it there? In the day of my trouble, I sought the Lord, and the night my hand was stretched out without weariness. My soul refused to be comforted. And in the parallel of that in verse 3, When I sigh, then my spirit grows faint. Again, it's parallelism. It's the nature of Hebrew poetry to to, uh, put things in two parallel lines and to say the same thing a second way and a different way. But it's reflecting the distinction between soul and spirit. We also have it over in Isaiah 26. Isaiah 26. Now, Mary does not yet have uh, a Hebrews to deal with. Mary does not yet understand that the word of God is live and powerful, sharp than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the divining asunder of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and is a critical judge of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. That's waiting for church age revelation. That's waiting for the New Testament to unfold. But within what has been unfolded, she can understand distinctions between soul and spirit. Isaiah 26, 9. Again, it's in a song. It's in a song. Why is it that music is so powerful? Why is it that songs are able to touch us in the way that they do? particularly when the song itself communicates the content of God's Word. In other words, if there's doctrinal content incorporated within the song, it's not only communicating information, but it's communicating information across in such a way that it touches our soul the way music does. I just find that amazing how even the heathen, even the pagans, appreciate various forms of music in various ways. How many false religions, how many evil religions incorporate systems of music in their uh, in their structure, all right. Isaiah twenty six nine, uh, verse seven says, "The way of the righteous is smooth, O upright one, make the path of righteous uh, of the righteous level." See, Isaiah understood that this is the Christian way of life; that we are in fact imitators of Him, because He is the upright one, and we are to be upright ones in our walk. So the way of the righteous is smooth, O upright one, make the path of the righteous level. Indeed, while following the way of your judgments, O Lord, we have waited for you eagerly. Your name, even your memory, is the desire of our souls. At night, my soul longs for you. Indeed, my spirit within me seeks you diligently. So there's the pairing of soul and spirit, and it is in the approach to God himself, to his ways, to his nature, to his plan for our life. For when, you, for when the earth experiences your judgments, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. Now Isaiah is living in very interesting times. Isaiah is living when uh, the northern kingdom is swept away, when the southern kingdom thinks they're going to be swept away, when King Hezekiah needs to be encouraged in his faith, when uh, the Jewish people are under uh, divine discipline for their rebellion at various times. And uh, as Isaiah is cycling the word of God through his soul, he's starting to understand that even the divine discipline that serves as a wake-up call is very instructive. Even divine discipline and judgments are therefore instructive because they reveal the nature of God. As he says here, when the earth experiences your judgments, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. And this is why we need to seek him. As he points out in the, in the uh in the uh, the late night, at night my soul longs for you. Indeed, my spirit within me seeks you diligently. There was an article I read a couple weeks back that was discussing the problems with modern technology and the uh, how not too long ago in the in human history. Um, it was a sun-up to sun-down type of existence. And you'd go out and you'd work, you'd farm your land and whatever, and you'd come back home, and it was a sun-up to sun-down. And sure, you had candles and you had other ways to to light your home at night, but society basically operated from sun-up to sun-down. And and evening times were times at home. There were times with family. There were times for Bible study and and things like that, uh, by candlelight in the evening hours. Now, of course, we've got the city light up non-stop 24 hours a day. You can do anything, go anywhere, and all the things that happen around the clock. And anyway, it was an interesting article, and it, uh, kind of, uh, dealt with us on a society level in, uh, in spiritual terms. I thought it had, it had a lot to say in that regard. Alright, so the first thing we observe in Mary's song is the pairing of soul and spirit. An understanding that here's the Father who has impregnated her body but her soul and her human spirit now are going to launch forth this song of praise, rejoicing at how faithful the Lord truly is. Secondly, the reference to God as a personal Savior in Luke 1.47. The personal Savior. My spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. My Savior becomes personal at that point. Not just the Savior, my Savior. And that's a big difference. Yes, the coming Christ is going to crush the serpent's head. Yes, he's going to remove the sin of the world. Yes, he's going to redeem fallen humanity and restore us to a right relationship with God the Father. But beyond working in the vast realm of nations, the vast realm of the human race, through all of the eons of time, see, the glory of God is not just his his eminence, that he's beyond the universe, he fills the universe, that he has this vast sweeping plan from Alpha to Omega. That, that sometimes is, it just boggles us, doesn't it? Because we're finite creatures. <laughs> we're creatures of time, bound by time, and we proceed one day at a time, and we have trouble planning things on Friday. Okay? And besides, it's only Wednesday, so I got two more days to worry about it. Alright? And yet, we come across God the Father, and he's got this amazing plan from Alpha to Omega. And it incorporates every step in between. And it's a vast plan that incorporates all the angelic realms of, of, of uh, cherubim and seraphim and morning stars and arch, uh, angels and messenger angels and, and watcher angels and all the realm of angelology and then all the realm of humanity. And he's got all the, the, the three divisions of, of Ham, Shem, and Japheth worked out. He's got the 70 nations of the earth worked out. He's got the nation of Israel worked out. He has all the vast empires worked out from Babylon to Persia to Greece to Rome and all the sweeping events of prophetic history all worked out. So the, the vastness of the plan of God is stunning. But then you take that vastness and then you narrow the, you, you zoom in as it were, And you realize that all right, forget the billions and billions of people that have ever lived. There's six billion people on the earth right now, and who knows how many have lived since Adam. But besides the vastness of it, how about the the focus? Because he has a plan that includes me. One person. Me. And plug your own name in there. He's not just the Savior, he's my Savior. And he's got a plan that not only spans millennia, thousands and thousands of years, but it encompasses today. (laughs) Today. A 24-hour time span from however you want to measure it. The Hebrews measured it from sundown to sundown, and I guess that's the biblical pattern. There was evening and there was morning one day, and that's the pattern of their clock. We have this midnight Roman standard that we can thank Julius Caesar for. All right, so we track midnight to midnight. Well, regardless the earth's going to spin once wherever we start and stop that reckoning and we're going to have a 24-hour period and the plan of God includes that time and how we use that time for His glory. So, when we contemplate the plan of God, it's not just expansive, it's also focused on me today. And Mary's song reflects that. An understanding of the personal Savior. This reflects a lot of the Davidic Psalms. This reflects... Uh, The prophetic passages, but God as the Savior, the overwhelming issue of the sin problem, I think was rather overlooked by the time Jesus Christ was walking this earth. Had a lot of people that started flocking after him because they liked being fed. (laughs) He could multiply loaves and fishes and he could feed them and he could heal them when they were sick. That's a pretty convenient king. Let's go ahead and make him king. And there were a lot of real patriotic Jews that wanted to throw off the bonds of Rome and stomp on the Gentiles and rule this earth. But the idea of a redeemer, the idea of a sin problem, the idea that I've got to repent. Wait a minute. See, John the Baptist starts preaching repent and uh, takes on a whole new nature to the message. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Calls them a brood of vipers. I think the, uh, the spiritual nature, the need for salvation was largely lost on the vast bulk of the Jewish population of of his time. In Psalm 24, Psalm of David, publishing blurb says, the king of glory entering Zion. I should point out that there's a difference between the publishing blurbs and the psalm uh, prescripts. The prescript, a psalm of David, actually is in the Masoretic Hebrew text. And that's why most of the verse numbers are off between the English Bible and the the Hebrew Bible and the text. Because in the Hebrew text, verse 1 is a Psalm of David. Verse 2 is the earth is the Lord and all it contains. Uh, A lot of the versifications are one-off between the English text and the Hebrew text because of that. Because these author prescripts are included in the Hebrew text itself. All right, a psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and all those who dwell in it. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord and who may stand in his holy place? Remember, the part of Satan's rebellion in his five-eye wills in talking about the taking his seat on the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully. In other words, the human race is sinful and cannot approach God's holiness. We have no way, no basis, no ability to approach the holiness of God. And that's been the case since he drove Adam and Eve out of the garden. Until, of course, God makes provision for this through the Redeemer. Verse 5, he shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. See, there's an answer to this question. Who can do this? Christ. Who can do this? The coming Mashiach, the coming Christ, the coming Redeemer. He can do this. He can ascend. He can take his stand in the holy place. He can appear before the presence of the Father. He is the one with clean hands. He is the one with the pure heart. He is the one that has not lifted up his soul to falsehood. He is the one that has not sworn deceitfully. And since he has qualified, and since he has done the work, and since he has ascended, what's he going to do when he gets there? He shall receive a blessing from the Lord, and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, even Jacob Salah. All right? That's the first six verses of the psalm. It goes on for three more verses, or four more verses, seven, eight, nine, and 10, with the King of Glory. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of Glory may come in. It's quite interesting in the psalm that before the king can make his entrance, first there has to be that presentation in the heavenlies. That uh, triumphal entry that we sometimes talk about on Palm Sunday or Palm Monday, if you follow Harold Holner's chronology, um, that the the king entering in humbly on a colt and so forth, and they were singing hosanna and praising the king. Um, in reality, the king will make his entrance second advent. The king will make his advent in glory second advent. And even though it was the entrance of the king on Palm Monday, he was still very humble, riding in on a donkey, having laid aside his privileges. He was not the king of glory. You understand the distinction there? The offer was being made, certainly. Behold your king, and yet they rejected him and crucified him. I think the order on this is significant in that in verses 1 through 6, we have the presentation of holiness, the presentation in heaven first, that is appearing on our behalf, and then making his entrance. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is the king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. But see, the crown cannot precede the cross. And before you can have the entrance of the King of glory in 7 through 10, you've got to have who may ascend into the hill of the Lord. You've got to have Him ascending and being presented and being approved as the book of Daniel highlights, with the Son of Man who approaches the Ancient of Days and judgment is handed down in favor of the Son of Man and he is given the kingdom. Tremendous, tremendous doctrine in shadow forms and prophetic forms here, a thousand years before Christ, written by David in Psalm 24. But just spot the the item in verse 5, the God of his salvation the nature of a personal salvation. Yes, Jesus Christ bore the sin of the world and every human being was included when he took, when he accepted that judgment on Calvary. But it's not just corporate salvation, it's personal salvation. My salvation. Paul will often talk about, in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul will often talk about my gospel. Are we making it personal when we are describing these things, to this lost and dying world. All right, over to Psalm 25 then. Another Davidic Psalm. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul, O my God, in you I trust. Do not let me be ashamed. Do not let my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none of those who await for you will be ashamed. Those who deal treacherously without cause will be ashamed. Verse 4, make me know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. See, here's a believer who wants to learn in the Christian way of life. And he's going to learn it from the Lord himself. As God himself instructs us through his revealed word. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. You see it there again? It's personal. You are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day. Am I going to put my trust in man or am I going to put my trust in the Lord? Well, it's not man who hung himself on the cross and took my place and redeemed me. It was God himself that hung on the cross, took my place and redeemed me. So he's the one I'm going to trust in. He's the God of my salvation. As David says here, You are the God of my salvation, for you I wait all the day. The prophet Micah addresses the personal Savior. In Micah 7.7, Jonah, Micah, Nahum. Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum. Micah seven seven. It's quite interesting. Coming in the midst of a of a great complaint. It's almost like the Book of Lamentations. <laughs> where we can have a wonderful promise like great is thy faithfulness in the midst of one of the most depressing passages in the Bible, Lamentations chapter 3. Here it is again, a, a lament, a complaint, a downer passage. And yet he come, the prophet comes out of it with a great big but in verse 7 and puts it back under divine viewpoint and, and uh, keeps his eyes where they need to be. Verse 1 says, Woe is me, for I am like the fruit pickers, like the grape gatherers. There is not a cluster of grapes to eat, or a first ripe fig which I crave. The godly person has perished from the land, and there is no upright person among them. Living in a country with no more believers committed to, to teaching. Sometimes we feel that way. <laughs> Sometimes we think that we're the last Bible teaching church in the country. <laughs> we say, well, okay, there's, there might be one or two more that are out there somewhere. All right. And here's Micah. It's the same as the Elijah syndrome. Woe is me, Lord, I'm the only one left. All of them lie and wait for bloodshed. Each of them hunts the other with a net. Concerning evil, both hands do it well. <laughs> They're ambidextrous evildoers. They can do it left-handed, right-handed, it doesn't matter. The prince asks also the judge for a bribe, so the legal system is totally corrupt. And the great man speaks the desire of his soul, so they weave it together. In other words, it's all rigged ahead of time. The outcome's already predetermined. The best of them is like a briar, the most upright like a thorn hedge. The day when you post your watchman, your punishment will come. Then their confusion will occur. Do not trust in a neighbor. Do not have confidence in a friend. From her who lies in your bosom, guard your lips. All right, so all of society is, uh, is out to get you. You can't trust any of them. They're all pursuing wickedness, including your neighbor, including your friend, including your, uh, you'll notice they're not married, it's just her who lies in your bosom. So whoever you're shacking up with here, guard your lips. For son treats father contemptuously, daughter rises up against daughter, daughter in law, I'm sorry, daughter rises up against mother, daughter in law against her mother in law, a man's enemies are the men of his own household. Now, this is an amazing passage anyway, because it becomes Christological when Jesus Christ makes reference to it and refers to the the divisions that will occur in earthly families because of the gospel. But. (laughs) All right, after all of that depression, after all of that uh, lament, lamentation, comes the focus. And bear in mind, lamentation is natural. We have souls that hurt. We reflect that hurt through verbal expression. But let's always just get it back to divine viewpoint. But as for me, I will watch expectantly for the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. We can apply this in the rapture passage. As dark as our generation's getting, as evil men and impostors grow from bad to worse, as this world is passing away and along with it its lust, it is proceeding, it's getting darker and darker with each generation. But as for me, I will watch expectantly for the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. As ugly as this world's getting, that just means we're that much closer to hearing the trumpet, that much closer to being caught up in the clouds. I uh, hesitate to ask the rhetorical, how much worse can it get? <laughs> you know? I used to ponder that. Well, how much worse can it get? And then I started realizing, you know, that's not really a fun thing to think about because it keeps getting worse. So, it's almost like daring the Lord when you say that. When you say, Lord, how much worse can it get? You're almost taunting Him. You know? Saying, come on, Lord, I dare you. I double dog dare you. No, it's getting worse. It keeps getting worse. I wonder... What our children are going to face? What are Bob and Lethe and Chris and Zoe going to face if they reach adulthood and the rapture hasn't happened yet and uh and this generation proceeds? I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. See, when you have a personal relationship and a confidence that's based on that personal relationship, you have confidence in your prayer life. Total confidence. And what's going on and why it's going on. All right, finally, Habakkuk 3.18. I guess I'm going to have to close two minutes early so I can go answer the stupid phone. <laughs> nah, let them call back. They keep getting the answering machine. Habakkuk 3.8. Habakkuk. Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk 3.18. Is it Habakkuk or Habakkuk? I learned it. Habakkuk. And then I started going to uh, getting trained for the ministry and Ralph always pronounced it Habakkuk. I thought, oh, okay, I'll call it Habakkuk. I grew up in, the, in Washington State, it was Habakkuk. All right, in Texas it's Habakkuk. In Hebrew it's Habakkuk. All right. Um, again, there's problems. Again, there's lamentation divine judgment and verse 16 I heard and my inward parts trembled and the sound of my lips quivered decayed are my bones and in my place I trembled because I must wait quietly for the day of distress for the people who arise to arise who will invade us Habakkuk the watchman on the wall who saw it all coming Though the fig tree should not blossom and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. Again, it's personal. And you see the exulting and the rejoicing. Same language that Mary used. Exulting, rejoicing. The Lord God is my strength. He has made my feet like Heinz' feet and made me to walk on high, on my high places. You realize that even the difficult places he puts you are yours. It is a path, it is a walk that he has designed for you. It becomes personal. Even your testing becomes personal. Again, for the choir director, the whole body of the redeemed can celebrate these things together. All right, we will come back to this issue next Wednesday and... Focus in on the remainder of these. We've covered A and B. We have C D E F G H I J to deal with as we continue to break down Mary's song verse by verse and observe the Old Testament foundation contained in her truth. Shall we pray? Father, thank you for the for the food you have provided for us, Father, the spiritual food that we have been blessed to partake of this morning. We ask that you will continue to nourish our souls with this teaching. Let us receive the word firmly implanted. Let us uh, make sure that the thorns are cleared away, the stones, the rocky ground is cleared away. Give us good depth of soil Implant this seed and let it spring forth and bear fruit. Father, uh, remove the obstacles that would hinder us from being uh, effective servants of your word and let this truth spring forth and bear fruit 30, 60, even 100 fold if you so desire, Father, to make use of us in such a fashion. We thank you for your promises, we thank you for your truth, and we thank you that we have a a nation of freedom that we can assemble together on a weekday morning and open the scriptures for our guidance, for our comfort, for our encouragement. And we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.